Hearing about unorthodox careers is just hugely inspiring for people because, you know, you never know where you might want to go next. So. Exactly, with the world of the possible, my exactly. I'm Beatrice Collier. And I'm Georgina Wolfe. And this is the Pupillage Podcast brought to you by Middle Temple and us, your hosts. Many of you listeners are already set on a career as a barrister, but some of you may not be 100% sure. Perhaps you love the law, but feel the bar is not quite the perfect fit. Well, this episode is for you. In this episode, we look at a few of the other options for a legal career. We hear from EJ Johnston-Hawk, a trainee solicitor, about why she chose that route, loves the extra client contact and the role of a trusted advisor, and has no regrets about not being the one to speak in court. From Millicent Grant, the president of Silex, the Chartered Institute of Legal Executives, about the legal executive route. And then our last guest is Lisa Osofsky, director of the Serious Fraud Office. But first, we spoke to Christina Blacklaws, former president of the Law Society of England and Wales, who gave us a whistle-stop tour of the huge array of different types of solicitors out there and the changes ahead for those starting their training. Christina is a solicitor and was the 174th president of the Law Society of England and Wales, the fifth woman to hold this office. She sits on or chairs four government panels, two of which are concerned with innovation and technology in the legal profession. She's also a member of several advisory groups concerned with gender and equality. Christina, very big welcome to the Pupilage podcast. Thank you. It's lovely to be here. So many of our listeners may have been thinking that they really like the sound of the law, but they really don't like the sound of standing up in front of a judge and the nerve-wracking presentation skills that that might entail. There are obviously different types of lawyers out there. Can you tell us about the sorts that you know about? Okay, so we we are one, I think, of only seven jurisdictions in the entire world that has a split profession. So largely between the barrister's profession and the solicitor's profession. Now, there are... Uh, around about 200,000 solicitors in the UK. Um, and and I mustn't forget Silex as well, because that's really important um, in terms of the, the different qualifications. I think there are about 15,000 barristers, aren't there? Something like that. Yeah, so, so, so in terms of size of profession, there are a lot more solicitors. Um, but that's also because it's a very, very broad profession. So... Um, there are so many different ways to, to be a solicitor. Um, one of them is what most, most people think about, which is being a solicitor in private practice. Um, and I'll come back to that. But there's also about 25% of practicing solicitors work in-house. So they are working um, for a business Um, and helping and supporting that business around issues like risk and compliance, but increasingly also about the strategy of of that business. So so there's the in-house community, there's the private practice, and and then there are solicitors who practice on on their own account as well. Um, So there are also solicitors who work, for example, in government, whether that be in central government or local government. So there's, there's an array of different ways that you can practice as a solicitor. And then, of course, there's a whole range of different types of of lawyering that you can do within that from um, working on a high street, maybe doing um, family law or criminal law or housing or social welfare, those sorts of things, um, to working in one of our global law firms, uh, you know, perhaps 
having an international career um, working in large-scale global mergers and acquisitions. So it's a huge and vast array, something for everyone, I would say. And obviously with that huge range, what is it that, generally speaking, a solicitor does? <laughs> Again, that's, <laughs> it's not an easy question to, to answer. But, but at its highest level, um, the difference, I think, broadly between the solicitor's profession and the barrister's profession is that solicitors are the ones who see the clients from the off. So if a client, either an individual or a business, has a problem, uh, they recognise it as a legal problem, um, then they will usually go to instruct a a solicitor. Um, And so the solicitor will be engaging with that client, building a relationship, finding out what their problem is and advising them about how they might resolve those problems and supporting them to, to, to do just that. Um, and, and I guess um, there are some solicitors also who are advocates, um, who, who take a case from, from start to finish. But many solicitors choose not to. Um, and, and that's where we start as, as the two professions to work together very closely, because the bar obviously is a, in, in most senses, is a referral profession. So solicitors will instruct barristers um, to advise about very complex issues, um, to represent clients in the in the main in court although as I say some solicitors do their own advocacy um, and and that's uh, certainly in my experience has has been uh, a really um, a great part of my professional life is working with other other professionals. Christina you said that the solicitor's the first person who the client or the prospective client approaches so it sounds like people skills would be one very important component of a solicitor's talents, what other skills do they or should they have in your view? Well, anybody who's thinking about entering the law needs to know this is a highly, whatever branch of the profession you go into, it's highly, highly competitive. Um, and, and so you have to be able to evidence great intellectual skill as well. So you've got to have good grades. And you're absolutely right. People skills um, is, is really important. And I would sort of break that down into two things, which one is, um, one is about having emotional intelligence, um, so a lot of people, when they think of the law, think of it as just you know, purely a sort of intellectual, academic um, career. But it, but it certainly isn't. Uh, I don't think it probably ever was, but it certainly isn't now. So, so you've got to have that that um, ability to understand what the real issues are. So to be able to to engage your clients in that way and to be able to really have those honed communication skills. So that whether your client is, as in part of my career, I was a children's lawyer. So some of my clients were the most vulnerable and disempowered in society. So the way that you interact um, to be able to ensure that they can make um, well-informed decisions themselves. The way you interact with uh, a vulnerable uh, child and the way you interact with a captain of industry, uh, very, very different. But nonetheless, you need to have that, that, that skill set. Do you also, do you think these days, need to have uh, some knowledge of an interest in technology? Uh, yes, <laughs> and this is one of my um, my pet subjects. Uh, and one of the government panels that I chair is called the Law Tech Delivery Panel. And, and one of our work streams is around 
the future of legal education. And um, we have some concerns that people who are going through the legal education system at the moment are, are perhaps not getting the exposure that they need. Uh, and some universities are, are now really trying to address this. But to um, what is going on in our in our profession, in our industry, in terms of the the way that we deliver legal services, and technology and innovation uh, hand in hand are are really changing things. Which um, certainly to the junior lawyers who I speak to, the junior solicitors who I speak to, who are are utilising. Um, machine learning software, um, natural language processing software, things that that are able, algorithms in effect, that are able to do a lot of the the grunt work that they used to have to do. They had to cut their teeth on reading through thousands of contracts uh, and finding the outliers. Well, machines can do that now and they can actually do it better than people. But the ability to work with machines... Um, is is going to be a really key element of the future of legal service delivery. Um, that doesn't mean necessarily that you need to code, but actually having a familiarity and an understanding and a comfort with new technologies is going to be a really essential component to to your success in your career. Um, and, and being open to that, uh, uh, and I think... Um, People who are coming into the law need to to, to be really clear that the, the days, although I'm sitting in a room surrounded by leather-bound books, <laughs> but you know, the, the, the days of, of sort of rumpole and um, you know, dusty solicitor's offices, um, those, those are over. And, and actually, that means that the career is, is more exciting, is more accessible, um, and I, I firmly believe will be more fulfilling for, for everybody. Do you think that applies across the range of solicitor jobs that you described earlier yes yeah absolutely so um one of the other government panels i sit on is looking at the post laspo review and um laspo was the the act of parliament which removed great sways of um of types of law from from legal aid uh, availability and that had big consequence and the government recognise that and has now given us a big fund to look at innovative ways to deliver access to justice. So right from the the sort of the hard-nosed end of access to justice right up to um, the very, very corporate um, international practice that is the sort of spectrum, I guess, of of the the type of work that you can do as a solicitor. technology and innovation are going to be playing a pivotal role. Just thinking about the current training that we have, for both barristers and solicitors, the very first step is to get the academic legal qualification. And that can either be through a law degree, um, it can be by doing the graduate diploma in law, which is the one year law conversion course. And at that point, the two um, branches separate. What happens if you want to be a solicitor? So uh, at the moment, and and things are changing here as well. So so you know anybody who's listening who's thinking about this, um, I would firmly recommend that you go onto the Law Society's website, where not only are there lots of um, 
webcasts and helpful hints and tips about how to progress your career. There's also a lot of information about how solicitors qualifying is changing. Um, so at the moment, uh, you then go on to do your legal practice course, which is a one-year vocational course, and then you undertake two years of, of um, authorised training. And at that point, um, you have you have a training supervisor, and it is their decision as to whether to sign you off to say that actually you are sufficiently now well qualified to become a solicitor. From... Um, autumn 2021 uh, a new set of exams will be brought in uh, and that will mean that there will be sort of two it's called a super exam um, it effectively replaces that uh, sign off by your training supervisor uh, the first exams will be um, sort of quite a black letter law uh, with a bit of skills based that you take at the outset of your uh, period of training. So you still have to do your two years. Uh, the second exam you take at the end of your period of training, and that's much more sort of skills, um, uh, going back to the communication, engagement, competency-based um, series of, of um, assessments. So there's some pretty major changes ahead for Ma Major changes, training. yeah. The idea being that um, this will open up, uh, and, and I think this is really important, one of the most important things for us is to ensure that um, anybody who has the right intellect and um, the right skill set should be able to become a solicitor. Uh, and so the idea was to open up the qualification so that many more people could qualify. There was a bit of a, um, a pinch point around the, the, the period of training, what used to be called the training contract. So there weren't enough training contracts for the good candidates. So the idea is to open this up so that we have um, a, a, an assessment which is objective and which enables uh, the, those great people to, to qualify and to, to be able to practice as solicitors. There's a sort of cliched view of solicitors is that it's a very traditional profession to work in and from all that you're saying this is is no longer the case no and you know and I think we sometimes we're not helped are we by uh, our representations in, in media and particularly uh, on television about what what it's like to be working in in a um, in legal practice and I think there's such a huge huge variety but I would say to to anybody listening you know try and get some insight and 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 experience so that you can you can know for yourself what the options are um, because you know what you see on television what you're told by you know maybe you you have a relative who's who's in the law you know their experience of it probably is wildly different to to other types of experience so be open to the fact that there is a um, a, a vast array of opportunity out there yes. and something hopefully that would suit you in any part of the profession so for people who are thinking about it, this the, the best advice perhaps is to do lots of different vacation placements and any work experience opportunities that they can lay their hands on at high street firms, at, at big magic circle firms if they get those opportunities. And also to think about 
in-house solicitors. There are all sorts of different places that solicitors pop up. They're not just found in solicitors' firms alone. Yes, that's absolutely right. But I'm I'm also conscious that for some people, they don't have those opportunities. So so the Law Society, and particularly the Junior Lawyers Division, uh, the Junior Lawyers Division represents... um, people who are training on on the, um, the courses, training and up to six years qualified. So they've got over 70,000 members um, and, um, you know, they can give helpful insights as, as well. If you if you don't have the, the advantages of knowing people in the law or being able to to um, get those those ins or indeed having the time to 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 be able to to commit to work placements, etc. Um, so, so you know, you can build up um, insight, knowledge, and understanding, even without having those experiences. We talked a lot on the podcast about the ends of court for barristers. Of course, there aren't ends of court for solicitors, but you do have the Law Society, which is perhaps rather broader than the Bar Council, which is the barristers' equivalent. Is that? Is that fair that the Law Society helps with education in a way that perhaps the it's a big um, it's a big part of what the Law Society does. So the Law Society is there to represent, promote, and and support all all solicitors and all those who aspire to be solicitors. Um, And it has um, as a statutory duty actually a huge public interest element of that, in part which is around education. and, and we do um, we do a, a lot which is specifically directed towards people, particularly with protected characteristics. So we have divisions. I've talked about the junior lawyers division. We have the ethnic minority solicitors division, women lawyers division, um, LGBT plus um, lawyers with disabilities. So. Um, Particularly, I think, if if you have one or more protected characteristic, then do get in touch with the Law Society because um, not only can you get advice, but we also run schemes whereby we um, we give out grants, particularly from people for people. I, I'd also include those who um, don't come from socially advantaged backgrounds as as well, and and so we give out we give out grants, we give out a lot of support, we mentor, um, we we match. Uh, people who want to come into the profession with people who are in the profession at different levels so that they can usually the best matching is somebody who's just that little step ahead of you so that they have all of the 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 current know-how and information uh, and experience brilliant that's great advice thank you ever so much thank you so much oh thank you both it's been great It's a fabulous profession to get involved in. There's so much challenge and interest and variety and um, reward. Yeah, and we all define reward differently. EJ Johnston-Hawke has a policy background, but is now a trainee solicitor at Edwards Dothy Shamash. Very big welcome, EJ. Thank you. Can you tell our listeners what you did before you decided to become a lawyer? Um, So I have, um, as you say, a background in policy. I did a master's in gender and international development and looked at the standing orders of the government in Bangladesh. um, And from there did a, um, wrote a master's with my master's tutor for university. So I was an assistant tutor at um, Leicester University. Um, 
And when I finished that, I, well, when I finished my master's, I decided I wanted to go into policy at the time and applied to work at a think tank, which looked at reducing poverty in the UK. Um, and it was a fascinating experience. It was my first job. I was an intern there and sort of got an insight into the world of politics, sort of cross-parliamentary um, party think tank. Through my roles at the think tank, I, s I spoke to lawyers about the, the running of the think tank and got involved with the board. And it was through there that I took an interest in becoming a lawyer, but was still very much interested in politics and policy. And I wanted to look at how to bring those all together and to marry those, those roles, um, but wasn't sure at all how to do it. Um, so I thought, well, I'll take the leap and do the first step, which is leave the think tank and study the GDL. Okay. And then when you were on the GDL, did you know at that stage whether you wanted to have a role as a solicitor, whether you wanted to be a barrister, whether you wanted to be in-house counsel somewhere? Did you have an idea about your eventual professional role at that stage or not? Not really, actually. I, I didn't want to be a barrister. It looked absolutely terrifying. It terrified me. The seeing the barrister um, being chewed up in front of a judge just wasn't my idea of um, fun and I thought being a solicitor was what I would have preferred to have done. So that our listeners can understand it, it's right isn't it that there are different types of solicitors so some solicitors might um, cover a whole host of different uh, legal fields, others might be highly specialised um, some might work in very small firms, others in massive magic circle organisations. Uh, did you have any thoughts about where you might want to end up in terms of your office and your specialism? Yes. So I always, since working at the think tank and um, doing my master's, I'd wanted to bring in policy and politics somehow into my career. And I wanted to do law as well. And to be able to mix those together and work in um, in a way that used all those all my interests um, was what I really wanted to do. So I suppose in my case, it was the topic and the area of law that that made me choose the path I did and and this training contract. Um, I magic circle firms. I have friends who work in them. Um, it was never really something that I had could envisage myself working in. Um, I don't particularly want to work very, very long hours. And the Magic Circle, just for those who don't know, is the, the sort of name that's given to the very, very top, very large commercial um, commercial solicitors' firms. Yes, yeah. Um, I think there are about five of them. They're in that, that circle, and they're the ones that pay very well. Um, and I think a lot of people, when they think about lawyers, they picture the magic circle firm lawyers but that's really not the case there are so many different lawyers in England and Wales that work in high street firms in legal aid where the pay is at the other end of the scale so it can be in the 20s and 30s um, our firm does a lot of legal aid work and it is hard work but not very well paid my husband actually used to be a legal aid barrister and for some of his cases he had being paid about £3 an hour for them. So there's not only differences between barristers and solicitors, but also within those professions, there's differences between um, the pay and the um, experience you have. 
So, yes, long hours, pay, all differ. Probably not as much client contact either, because if you're working in a magic circle firm with 20 people on your team, you may not actually ever sit down with the client. That might just be what the partner does, and you might be in the back room doing due diligence or um, looking at the documents. Yeah, yeah, that's very true. So, actually... When you're looking um, at firms and what you, what sort of training contract, what sort of experience you want to have, um, it's good to know it tends to be that in smaller firms or medium firms you get more legal experience because there are not as many staff, so you can get thrown into the deep end more, um, which is really, really great experience. So then when you become, you get to, you qualify, um, you've done a lot of Um, the experience you've got a lot of the experience already in a lot of the cases you've got under your belt so I think the the training you might get a smaller firm could be better Um, but then there's also resources as well larger firms will have better resources so it's it's a balance between resources and experience so for those of our listeners who are at the moment thinking about becoming solicitors and hear what you say about there being a wide range of different options do you have any advice for them about how to start to find out about the different options and work out where they might want to place themselves I would say work experience is really important Um, you can research online but going somewhere and sitting in an environment and doing the work or watching people do the work it will tell you what you like and how you can picture yourself in the future where you'll be how do you how do you go about getting that work experience Writing to your local firms, if you can, with a cover letter and a CV. Um, thinking about what connections you have, any contacts you have in law. I got my first, one of my first legal work experiences through one of the board members at the think tank job I worked at. I, well, after I'd left and was studying the GDL, I wrote to her, wrote her an email um, and asked to do work experience for a week. And eventually I did. And from there I got a job off the back of that. And they were actually the firm that paid for my LPC. So you small chance encounters or chance um, correspondence could lead to a, a role and where you can get funding or even a training contract from it. I think that's a really good point that um, it's important to emphasise that actually you, you never quite know where something might lead and that it's a good idea just to write the polite email and not be disappointed if nothing comes of it, but just keep keep doing that because you never quite know where things might come from yes I think just don't think about it too much send those a nice polite email out um, and maybe you may need to chase it up once or twice not too much um, because lawyers are very busy and if they don't respond to you it's not personal it's because they've got a lot on their plate and just see where you can go from there yeah, I think it's, it's so valuable. Those you know opportunities just to shadow somebody might lead to you hearing about an internship being open or to you know a particular job role being vacant that can then take you down another path. So I think always be open to those opportunities. Yes. So you said you were thinking about the sort of skills that you need to be a barrister and solicitor. What do you think are the top three skills or attributes that you need to be a solicitor? Um, attention to detail is very important as you'll be looking through a lot of documents making sure there are no um, spelling mistakes, you know, typos, errors. Uh, Then I would say second is being able to distill um, a lot of information and and analyse it in a legal way. So work quickly and be able to work through lots of documents. 
And then the third um, attribute is client care and emotional intelligence. You are going to be with your client during a quite difficult part of their life, especially if it's civil litigation, where there are documents that have their name on it and it can be quite terrifying if they're the party to litigation. And you are there to give them advice, make them feel better. You touched briefly, EJ, earlier upon earnings. I wonder if we can ask you a little bit more about earnings. It's right, isn't it? There's a massive range of salaries that could be available to someone who picked a career as a solicitor. Can you give our listeners some idea of the range? Yes, so the range can be massive. It's uh, from the lower end of the scale, sort of legal aid or more smaller firms. Um, It's... As, as a trainee, you can earn in the 20s. Um, and so tw- £20,000 a year. So £20,000 a year. Um, and I the other day I was looking up uh, Magic Circle firms and their training contract salaries, and they are in the 60s, and the first-year qualification salaries for some of them are £100,000. So there's a massive, massive range between um, smaller firms and Magic Circle firms. Um, so commercial law corporate legal jobs, jobs in tax, um, finance. They're all the um, solicitor roles that are really uh, well paid. Um, I think it's useful to look at the clients um, and what sort of clients they are. That would probably indicate your pay. So if the clients are large companies, corporates, people or organisations that have money, you're more likely to be paid more. If you work at um, a high street firm and they the clients are individuals and members of the public that walk in off the street or in legal aid if your clients are less well off then you probably aren't going to be paid as well as that even if as in legal aid you can be putting in many hours and the work is incredibly important and you are doing quarter protection work or family work um, and care proceedings you may not be paid as well i think i think that's really valuable because I think there's a tendency to think, well, if you go to a magic circle firm, you're going to be working all hours of the day and night. You're not going to get home before midnight and you're, se- you know, you're, you're selling those hours in exchange for the, the fat paycheck at the end of the month. But actually, even if you're working in a poorly paid area of law, you can still be putting in those really long hours, but you won't be taking home the, the large check at the end of the month. Yeah, and I think it's how you see your life and what your interests are and... I know the the people that work in our firm are so passionate about it and get such a, a are so fulfilled by it that um, that's what spurs them on. It's not necessarily the pay; it's being able to help a family stay together or um, help a vulnerable person be get put in the accommodation that they they need. Um, so, it for people looking to go into law and not sure which areas go into. Think about what you like doing. Think about your interests and um, whether you have done charity work experience or you enjoy um, finance and there's nothing also there's nothing wrong with choosing to go to a magic circle firm and deciding that's what your interests are and where they lie it's just important really to know what your interests are and to have examined it a bit before you embark upon whichever path it is that you choose yeah and you'll be working well hopefully working in that area for many years (laughs) You should probably, uh, yes, really think about the type of law, not just that you want to be a solicitor, but what kind of solicitor do you want to be? One of the other big differences between being a barrister and solicitor is the job security that you have as a solicitor. So you get a salary, you get maternity, paternity leave, sick leave, holiday leave, which you obviously don't get at the bar. So does that have an impact on on sort of decision making for choosing a career? Yes, yeah. I 
like having a salary. I like having the same amount of money coming into my bank every month and knowing what's coming into my bank every month. Um, my husband, who used to be a legal aid lawyer, would only be paid once the client had played the solicitor who had paid the barrister so he was waiting quite a long time for some of his checks to come through and he is no longer a barrister but after he'd left he was still being paid checks about a year and a half after he stopped so it's um a bit more erratic when you're a barrister i think the pay isn't because you're self-employed it's not a salary you don't get the same amount every month and Yes, you don't get benefits such as maternity, paternity or shared parental leave if you're a barrister, unlike when you're a solicitor. So I think the lifestyle, you have more of a routine, you can plan more, it's more structured when you're a solicitor. If you're a barrister, it's less so. What's the career progression for a solicitor? Um, so the career progression is um, you become a newly qualified solicitor that's what you're known as once you have completed your training contract and then you can work towards becoming an associate um, which is mainly just a title and you can charge more for your hourly rate and then after that you work towards being a partner you can either be a salaried partner or an equity partner equity partners receive some of their income from the profits of the firm so in that respect it's more could be more akin to a barrister where you don't know how much you're going to be paid each month. Um, and as a solicitor, you could become a judge. I know there are, there's very few solicitors that become judges, but there is more of a push at the moment to um, have more solicitors go, um, go and be judges, as I think um, there is more of a push for a more um, representative bench. What do you wish that you'd known when you first started out? That it does take a while, and now it does, so do your research, don't rush into it. You've got ages, if you, especially if you're just leaving university. I started my training contract when I was 30, so there is plenty of time, and I don't feel like I am an old trainee. I've met lots of other trainees who are older, and it's quite nice to have experience already that you can bring into your training contract in the workplace. Um, and... Just prepare yourself. You will face rejection, but that is not personal and it doesn't reflect on you and your skills. Um, it's just the fact that there are not enough roles at the moment for trainees and just, just keep going and hopefully you will get there. Thank you, EJ. It's been lovely to have you on the podcast. Thank you. When students consider a future in the law, they often think their decision is one of barrister versus solicitor. But there is another type of lawyer that offers some amazing advantages over the traditional paths the legal executive. A legal executive is very similar to a solicitor. They are fee-earning qualified lawyers who undertake the same sort of legal work as a solicitor. So what's the difference? Well, legal executives do not need to undertake an undergraduate degree or the legal practice course. Instead, there are different entry points with legal executives specialising in a particular area of law at an earlier stage. Not only that, if you have done the LPC or the bar course, but have not been able to get a pupillage or a training contract, it might not be the end of the road. Becoming a legal executive is another way to start practising law. Our next guest is perfectly placed to tell us all about this unique option. Millicent Grant is the president of Silex, the Chartered Institute of Legal Executives. Millicent always knew that she wanted to work in the legal profession and she set out to become a legal executive. She qualified in 1978 and was admitted as a fellow of the Institute in 1991, studying at evening classes and by distance learning to complete her qualification, 
while gaining some fascinating experience along the way. She has worked for local authorities as an employment lawyer and been a senior policy lawyer. But she has other strings to her bow. She also teaches and works as an executive and performance coach. Welcome, Millicent. Thank you. So let's jump in and find out. Can you tell our listeners, first of all, what is a legal executive? A legal executive is a fellow of the Institute of Legal Executives who's a qualified lawyer, but is qualified by a non-traditional route. So you don't need to have a degree. It sounds like the legal executive route is absolutely ideal for somebody who has a, um, perhaps is coming back to work, Um, hasn't got a a law degree, perhaps doesn't have the time and the money to invest in, you know, if somebody's got responsibilities, they they may not be able to spend Mm. three years studying a law degree. But this gives you the opportunity to study alongside working, to gain that experience and to come out with the qualification and to practice as a lawyer at the end of it. Yes. Amazing. I think it it is. (laughs) Yeah, no, it really is. There's also a graduate entry point, which is suitable for those who have completed the LPC, the BVC or the BPTC. And we do have members who who have taken the solicitor's qualifications and taken the bar council qualifications but can't get pupillage or a practising certificate. And they've joined Silex so that they can become the lawyers that they started out wanting to be. That is so interesting because there are so many people out there who can't get pupillage. There are far more people training than than there are pupillages Mm. available and the same for training contracts. So if your heart is set on being a lawyer, but you don't, you're not, you don't have that break, Mm. you can actually practice as a lawyer. There is another alternative. Yes, because um, in the Silex route, you just have to have qualifying employment, which is a certain quality of work and a certain number, a minimum number of hours per week and firms are always employing people so many of our members will be labelled paralegals within the firm but it will be qualifying employment because they still have a lot of opportunity and much of their placement depends on how the firm is structured and the titles that they give them but the titles that they give them don't necessarily describe the work that they do. Well, exactly. And as everyone knows, it's so much easier to work your way to where you want to be once you've got that initial break and you've you've got your foot in the door, so to speak. That's really, that's, I think, an incredibly useful piece of information. Absolutely. And one of the best kept secrets amongst the legal profession. Why did you decide from the beginning that you were going to be a legal executive? Tell us about your your life and (laughs) what you wanted to do and how you did it. I was inspired from a very early age by a photograph of my uncle because he qualified as a barrister after the Second World War. I think he might have been a member of Middle Temple as well, actually. Um, But he qualified after the Second World War, went to Nigeria and practised there for the whole of his career. So consequently, didn't have much contact with him. Um, But when I left school, I didn't know how to enter the law. And a youth leader suggested that I become a legal executive. He worked for one of the large firms in London as an accountant. So he knew the legal world and the entry points. And that was why I became a legal executive, because I was dead set on practising law some way. So were you working at the same time then? At the time that I was, um, st- I started my studies, you had to work and study at the same time. Yeah. So... I trained as a secretary for my last year at school and started work in King's Bench Walk. Oh, not far from where we are today. Yeah, as a secretary and started studying immediately as well. 
once you've got your qualification as a legal executive, what do you do then? Once um, somebody's fully qualified as a Silex lawyer, there's hardly any difference between what they can do and what a solicitor can do. Yeah. And sometimes even a barrister. But um, we've got members of paralegals, managers, salaried and equity partners in large firms and smaller firms, owners of their own businesses. Um, they hold senior in-house corporate lawyer positions. They're advocates. We can take additional qualifications to do that. And alternative business structures, some of them set up their own companies and their own firms and even become judges. So we have at least three Silex judges, but there are many more judges who became judges after first qualifying as Silex lawyers and then becoming solicitors because we weren't always able to become lawyers. I see. So basically, the world's your oyster. I mean, you can just you can decide now. what you want to do and go for it. Yes, opens up many doors, and it's accessible. You mentioned that there are very few things that a legal executive um, can't do that a solicitor mm-hmm. can. What are those things? Yeah, the, the, a couple of restrictions. So if the area of law is regulated, they must be regulated by an appropriate regulator. And if the activity is reserved under the Legal Services Act 2007, um, they must satisfy one of the other exemptions. But I think that applies to solicitors as well, actually. So there's certain anomalies, little things like a couple of things that they can't witness, they're not permitted to witness. But that aside, we are administrators for oaths as well. So that can easily be overcome. And most of our members work for solicitors' firms in any event, and solicitors' firms are regulated. I see. So you just said most of your members work in solicitors' firms, but there are there are a whole host of other options that you can choose, like the alternative business structure, yes. general counsel, mm-hmm. and so on. Um, do, you, do you need to have further qualifications, or is it more a matter of acquiring experience along the way that will assist you to... If, for example, you want to be general counsel to much of it, I think, is opportunity and experience. I'm speaking from my own experience. I've done most of what I wanted to do, and I've either been allowed to or restricted from doing so because of the framework of the organisation I'm working within. I see. So that's it. And then members can also be authorised to become sole practitioners in immigration, civil litigation, criminal litigation, family law, probate, and conveyancing. So they don't. They're freer to do what they want and they can set up their own firms as well so that's a a step first step to members owning their own firms it sounds like there may not be a one-size-fits-all answer to my next question but what does the day-to-day practice of a legal executive look like i think it depends on where they're working and the role that they fulfill because it's virtually the same as a solicitor so using my own experience because i know about that yeah um I've, depending on what stage of qualification that I'm at and the role that I'm performing in the place that I've worked, it's been from doing more assistance work to having complete control of a number of files, even very complex matters. So for those of our listeners who are thinking that um, the Silex lawyer route is ideal for their particular circumstances. Where can they find out more information uh, about it and, and how to progress? The starting point is at the Silex website, which is www.silex.org.uk. And we also have social media 
um, presence, but the website is the best starting point, or Silex Regulation, who are our regulators, and they're the ones who set the standards for the examinations. I'm struggling to see why anyone would become a solicitor with the Silex route available. Is there any disadvantage um, to the Silex route? I think Silex is the best kept secret. When I started, which was a long time ago, all a qualified legal executive could do is support the work of solicitors. They couldn't do anything else. But over the years, we've accrued incrementally more rights. Yeah. And we've accrued those rights because it reflected what we were actually doing. Yes. And when I started, there were many reasons for preferring to become a solicitor or barrister if you could, if you want, if you're very ambitious. But now I don't think there's very much difference. Millicent Grant, thank you very much for coming on the Pupilage podcast. It's been a pleasure. Thank, thank you. you for inviting me. Thank you. <laughs> Our final guest on today's episode has forged a very different path from the traditional career, staying in one chambers or one law firm. It may be a concern to law students that if you sign up to a legal career, you could spend your whole life stuck behind a desk in the temple. For some, nothing could be further from the truth. And that is definitely the case for our next guest, whose legal career has taken her all around the world. It is no exaggeration to say that Master Lisa Osofsky has had a stellar international legal career. Starting as a federal prosecutor in the United States, she has worked for the likes of Goldman Sachs and the Justice Department and spent five years as Deputy General Counsel and Ethics Officer at the FBI. She has been called to the Bar of England and Wales and is now the Director of the Serious Fraud Office. But it's not her first time working at the SFO. She was sent to London to work on a massive bank fraud scandal when she was a Justice Department attorney and sent by none other than the then head of the Justice Department's criminal division, one Robert Muller. Master Asofsky, thank you for coming on to the Pupilage podcast and welcome. Thank you for having me. So you have practiced in both the US and the UK and lots of our listeners may be from different jurisdictions and considering a career in the UK. What do you think recommends it? It's wonderful to get to see both sides of the equation. And by that, I mean, I grew up learning the U.S. system, and many of our laws are based on the system here. So it was easier, in a way, to learn a second set of rules where I already had the first set under my belt, as it were. So it was the ease of learning a new system when one had a comparator. And um, in terms of actually practicing, it really allows me to conduct myself, whether I'm working with the U.S. authorities, the U.K. authorities, or other European authorities. It really does help that I have a visceral understanding of how different systems treat issues very differently. Your career has taken you all around the world. What advice would you give to students who are looking for an international experience? Be humble. When I first got to the SFO 25 years ago, as you said, Bob Mueller had sent me, I didn't know the first thing about the British legal system. I found myself plunked down in an off-site in Finsbury Square at the time. It was 
called CityGate House, and we had certain areas of the BCCI case that we were responsible for. I had to learn everything from scratch. It didn't matter how well-educated I thought I was before I got here. I had everything to learn, and one has to learn it in a way that makes people want to teach you. And I think by that I mean don't get to your first job thinking, I got you know a first at Oxbridge and I'm really the best there can be and I know everything I'm doing. Be humble enough to understand that we're just starting out and whether it's in one's chosen jurisdiction or a new place, we all have a lot to learn. And I think being willing to learn and asking a lot of questions and paying a lot of attention, observing new areas, whether it's of practice or locations, will stand you in very good stead. That must be one of the things that absolutely recommends such a career as well, though, exposure to all sorts of new areas and new procedures. It's wonderful. I mean, it's wonderful until you happen to be on the wrong end of an assignment where you're making your colleagues in France or Switzerland work during the months of July and August. (laughs) They don't necessarily appreciate that. And yet, if you're tasked with delivering something for, let's just say, the U.S. federal government, you've got to deliver. So there is obviously a wonderful aspect of learning new things. And I will never, ever, ever try to make an entire bank (laughs) operate at full tilt over a summer holiday again, as long as I'm in a country that really correctly values its time off. So we we should ask you about the SFO. A lot of my friends in criminal practice have gone on to work for the SFO or to do secondments at the SFO. Um, Can you tell our listeners who might not know what the SFO does, what it's all about? Sure. We're the Serious Fraud Office. And we don't just do fraud, we do complicated fraud of the sort that that you wouldn't see every day, and we also do corruption work. When I say of the sort you wouldn't see every day, what I mean is we work on cases that require a mix of skills to get to the bottom of the case. So our whole office is based on what's called the Roskill model. That model was developed after recommendations about how this country dealt with fraud matters. And what it means is I sit next to, I'm a lawyer by training, I sit next to investigators, I sit next to forensic accountants, I sit next to digital examiners, and we work in teams that are multidisciplinary. So instead of the classic case people might think about, let's say with the Crown Prosecution Service, where the police do the investigating and give the file to the prosecutor, We actually do our case start to finish. So I will decide whether we need whether it's worth investigating a matter, whether that matter is sufficiently complicated, uses the skills we have that we think are unique to our organization, harms the UK PLC, isn't just your average garden variety case. And these are the sorts of things I'm thinking about when I open an investigation. And then we work together with our teams from start to finish. At the end of the day, we will 
be instructing Queen's Council and juniors to represent us in court because our cases often take months and months to actually try. So really what we do is is we do the high-level white-collar crime, and we work a lot on anti-corruption matters. So our work does take us all around the world and requires us to work with jurisdictions that you, you might not imagine. I've got I've had the Mongolian delegation in to see me. We work with Singapore. We have secondees from all around the world who come to sit and work with us because we have cases with them, and it's easier for them to learn how we do things. When we spend time together, we send folks out to be seconded in other parts of the world as well. So I hope that gives you a flavor. Um, I think we're about, we break down to about 50-50 in terms of our docket. So we have about half of our cases that are complicated fraud cases and about half our cases that are anti-corruption, anti-bribery cases. One thing people might be interested in, and we do attract people who have legal qualifications, we have a trainee program where we are an investigators type program where people come in. They're often people with higher degrees who have been out in other careers. They come in and we have a workbook, a program of 14 months where you do everything from section two, you know, particular procedural type things that you do in the criminal law. You do certain kinds of interviews, you go out on searches, and we get some very, very experienced people who want to get their hands dirty a little bit. They don't just want to be, let's say, in a courtroom. They actually want to be feeling what it's like to develop a case from start to finish. And and they seem very happy, and they get a nice diet intentionally of different sorts of aspects of the criminal justice system. So that that you've just mentioned, it, it, are they, is it a traineeship in investigating? I, I Yes. It's, it is, is it solely investigating? It's investigating. Yes. And we bring in people who have degrees, a range of degrees, including legal legal training. They've, they've looked at what it's like to be a lawyer. They may have had some difficulty getting pupillage, which we know is a hard ask. and Or they may have found that they don't want to narrow themselves as much. They really liked what they saw mm. on television, let's say, growing up, and they wanted to do some of the spade work. And so it is for investigators, but it's intentionally designed to hit at many different levels. We may get, uh, let's say, a police officer's had 10 years in a force where they don't really do white-collar cases, where they don't do the complicated fraud work or complicated corruption work that we do, and so they want to come and learn how we do things. So yes, it's investigating, and it does, and it's not just police officers. It's either it's people with advanced degrees in various languages. That's always a plus. It's people who even have marketing backgrounds, history backgrounds, people who've read English. I've seen such a range of skills and in in levels of professional attainment, and yet people still seem to get a lot out of it because it's a very structured fourteen month program where you really do roll up your sleeves and work in a team. And, and of course, you've come from a fused profession where there isn't the distinction that we have here between barrister and solicitor. And it sounds like the work of the lawyers in your office have much wider opportunities than perhaps our, our, our split profession allows in independent practice. Is that is that right? I think that's fair. I mean, if you think about it, I'm just, I'm remembering 
undergoing the testing I underwent to become a, a qualified barrister in this jurisdiction. And there was an ethics component where clearly the people who I was talking to thought I wouldn't get it that we don't really interview clients. That's for solicitors. So to really bifurcated yes, system, yes. you have one task, someone else has another. And I think one of the things that's been so exciting for me as a lawyer and so enjoyable is honing my interview skills. I really like talking to people, figuring out what makes them tick. And I think our lawyers benefit from being able to really get in the weeds and do that and determine whether people they're talking to are telling the truth, are sitting on information when in fact they should be giving it to us. And oftentimes I find at least initially, they're probably learning from trained investigators, but many of them have taken to it incredibly well, and they become phenomenal at at running really good technical interviews and also just understanding a little bit about the people they're talking to, reading body language well, and really trying to decide whether they have viable evidence, whether they have a potential cooperator, whether they have a real proper defendant on their hands. And so I think it's the, the, that kind of crossover is possible in an agency like ours. What advice would you give to those who are starting out in their legal careers? I'd say don't be wedded to one road. It's really, really easy. I mean, when I went to law school, the classic good career was you'd go to a good law school, you'd then clerk for a judge, and there seemed to be a path, you know, then you'd go into a good law firm or you'd go into a highly prized government department. And all along the way, I think you'll find that there's a classic good next step. And yet, if you can possibly force yourself not to feel constrained to do the next thing just because that looks right... I think you'll end up being so much better at your job, not just happier, but better at your job. So be open to different things. Trust your instincts a little bit. You know if you're miserable. And sometimes we all have to be miserable. The law isn't always fun. Reading every single footnote is not necessarily everybody's idea of joy. So sometimes we have to go through that to get to the next step. But if you see another opportunity, even if it's not in the classic going up the ladder. I'd say at least entertain it. Talk to people. Talk to your parents. Talk to your friends. Talk to some of the people who might have taken the past less less well walked and think about whether, in fact, it might suit you, even if it doesn't fit the classical model of what someone like you should do next. Well, Master Osowski, thank you very much for coming to talk to us on the Pupilage podcast. Thank you. I really enjoyed being here. Thanks so much. Oh, pleasure. Still looking for some guidance on how to decide whether the barrister path is for you? To end today's episode, here are some thoughts on the litmus test that is a mooting competition with Middle Temple's Master of the Moots, Angus McCulloch QC. You can hear more from Master McCulloch on our mooting demystified episode. And it seems to me it's a really great way if you're doing a law degree or you're doing the law conversion course and you're still not sure about whether to be a barrister or a solicitor and you want to dip your toe into the world of being a barrister, doing a moot is a really good way of experiencing it. If you do a moot and you think, well, that was terrifying, but I really enjoyed it, and it was rewarding and exciting, and I, that's where I want to go, that's a good indicator that you should be a barrister. 
if you do a moot and you think, oh, I really didn't enjoy that, I never want to stand up and argue a legal point again, maybe the solicitor's path is for you. Uh, absolutely. I wouldn't be put off too much by the first experience. Give it a bit more of a, <laughs> of a go than that. But you're quite right that it is a gives you a real flavour of uh, being an advocate in practice. And it gives you a flavour in, um, in a supportive and, as I said, initially informal environment. Um, and it will give you a, a feeling as to whether you enjoy standing up uh, and uh, indulging in advocacy. Uh, and I say indulging because those of us that do it for a living, on the whole, we enjoy it. At times we hate it when things are going badly, but we enjoy it and we thrive on it. Uh, and, and it will give you a feeling as to whether you have that buzz from standing up um, and trying to persuade a judge of the correctness of your argument and defending that argument in the face of, of challenges to it. Thank you for listening to the Pupillage podcast with us, Beatrice Collier and Georgina Wolfe, brought to you by Middle Temple. Production support and music by Alex Dopirala. Please check out the show notes for more on our guests, links to sources of information and a glossary of terms used in each episode.